there, and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and joining me on his birthday to talk about the second round of the NBA playoffs is Joseph Cacharo. Cash, happy birthday. You just couldn't stay away, could you? Thanks. Yeah, no, uh, just when I thought I was out, Wolfond pulls me back in. No, I didn't actually think I was out, though, so that's the difference. I'm, I'm cool to, to pot on my birthday. It's pretty light work, you know, just bantering about the NBA with you. You're on hosting and editing duties today anyway, so I can... Light work, Cash. I thought I was intellectually challenging you on these episodes, man. Stimulating you. Apparently not. But, hey, I, I want you to have an easy, relaxing birthday, so I will try not to do that on this episode. Won't, won't put too many difficult questions to you. Won't put any metaphorical guns to your head. Let's just talk some hoop. Second round of the playoffs... Still going on for all eight teams involved because the two potential closeout games last night both went to the teams in the 3-1 holes. The Knicks survived at home on the back of an unbelievable performance by Jalen Brunson. And the Warriors survived on the strength of, honestly, a total team effort. They, uh, they came out strong and focused. Another huge Draymond Green game in a big spot. Eerily reminiscent of that game five, I think, in Sacramento. And uh, the Warriors survived to send it back to L.A. So four series, all three, two in some form or fashion. And interestingly enough, we talked last round and we've talked obviously throughout this season and throughout this postseason about just the, the parody, the chaos. First round, four lower seeded teams. I never confirmed it, but I posited at the time that that had never happened in the first round of the NBA playoffs before. Still don't know if that's 100% factual or not. Nobody has come at me to correct me. We need a stat intern at Pound the Rock. But possibly even crazier than that, Cash, we might have a second round where all four lower seeded teams advance. And I'm willing to go out on another limb and say that that has never happened before either. This postseason is out of control, man. I don't know what to expect. I don't know what to believe or what to think. So what we're going to do today, we're going to go a little bit more big picture. We'll zoom out a bit and just talk about what we feel like have been the biggest storylines of the second round so far. I will start with you and ask you in hopefully a, a not too intellectually challenging way, Cash, what do you feel like has been the biggest storyline of the second round? All right. Well, we actually talked about it a little bit on the last pod, and it's like hard not to if you've paid attention at all to Lakers Warriors. And I'm starting here, not even because I think this is necessarily the most important observation of the second round, but also because it's like it's the champs playing the Lakers and the champs are on the road. So let's start here. One of the biggest stories or storylines of the second round so far to me has been very obviously the game within the game in Lakers Warriors. Anthony Davis is value on the defensive end how the warriors have tried to pull him away from the basket make him move tire him out and eliminate the biggest impediment between them and the rim that obviously hasn't been like the only thing that has determined how these games in this series have gone but it has been the biggest thing in my opinion and i feel like you'll agree with that too so to me that has been um at least for this series just the biggest storyline to watch. And honestly, the most fascinating thing to watch as well. Because even in that, I think it was a game two 
when everyone was getting on AD for disappearing because the offense had dried up and he wasn't hunting a shot. Like every other game with AD yeah. is that game. So yeah, and everyone gets on his case about it. But defensively, he has been an absolute monster, and it makes sense why the Warriors have tried to move him around and pull him away from the rim. But um, I mean, the Lakers now have gone to more of a switching scheme in not necessarily every single possession, but a lot of the times, whereas earlier in the series, and we were talking about it on the last episode, they had AD and kind of like, I don't know, would you call it like a high drop? Because to me, it was still some form of a drop. Like, yeah, yeah. High drop yeah. or flat hedge, or yeah. like a catch hedge, yeah. you could call it. But like high drop, shallow drop, like essentially coming up close to, but not quite at the level of the exactly. screen and then dropping back because he is still in a lot of those cases, trying to make a point of not letting the roller get behind him, but obviously you want to stay up high enough that you can get a contest up on a Curry pull-up. And AD happens to have the length to be able to do that without necessarily having to come all the way up to the level. Yeah, and if you remember after game one, we talked about how the Warriors should just put AD in as many screening actions as possible if that's how the Lakers and AD were going to go about it. And they did like they've, they've attacked. I mean, attack is the wrong word because you don't really attack AD, but you know what I mean? They've put him in a ton of screening actions since then. And the Lakers have, you know, had to adjust at certain points. Uh, like I said, game five, by game five now, they're switching a lot of that stuff with him. It's still working for the Warriors because he is being pulled so far away from the rim and it's opening up so much at the rim for the Warriors off who's ever catching the pass from the ball handler that's about to shoot that AD is out there defending, right? And on that note as well, I thought it was really interesting that as much as I'm saying the story is how the Warriors are trying to remove AD's rim protection, I thought, you know, the story of game four, for the most part, was that on that end of the floor. The same thing. Warriors trying to pull AD away from the rim. And then in the end... For what ended up being essentially the game ceiling defensive possession, it was AD's work on a switch in isolation against Steph and the versatility and the mobility he showed that ended up helping them seal that game. So I thought that was really interesting that in this series where the Warriors are trying to pull him away from the rim, he ends up helping save a game because of how good he still is even when defending away from the rim against a guy like half his size. So just in general, I know that was a very long-winded way of saying that that has to be the thing, the storyline from this series, because it really, like I said, I think it's like the game within the game. And uh, we'll see. I mean, now he's also, I think they cle- they said he does not have a concussion, but pretty scary late game five, takes an elbow from Kavon Looney, I think, and immediately goes to the ground, looks super woozy on the bench, reports for that, like he, he was wheeled in a wheelchair, which I assume is more like a precautionary thing because if he was woozy and somewhat dizzy and they thought he might have a concussion, let's not risk the near seven-footer that the athletic trainer probably can't physically support if he does yeah. fall. So it makes sense uh, why he was wheeled. But not breaking any news here by saying his status for <laughs> game six and the rest of the series will greatly determine what happens. No doubt. Uh, I think, yeah, the, the adjustments and counter-adjustments in that series and specifically related to Steph pick and roll versus AD and how both sides are playing it and the tweaks that they're making in order to try to win that battleground. 
I agree. Probably the most interesting element of the second round on the whole. The big adjustment the Lakers made in game four, the second half of game four really, was to put AD on Wiggins. Because the Warriors, who have now made two starting lineup changes in this series, first putting Jermichael Green in the starting lineup in favor of Looney, then replacing Jermichael Green with Gary Payton second. So initially, like the Lakers had AD on Jermichael Green. And essentially what the Lakers are saying is like, we don't want to put AD on Draymond because Draymond is Steph's preferred screener. Obviously the best short roll playmaker the Warriors have. So if you're going to do the thing where you want to call up AD over and over and over again, then at the very least, what we're going to do is not let you use Draymond to do it. If you want to put AD in the action every time. You know, the Warriors seemed pretty okay doing it with GP2, right? Like they had a lot of success and he may not be, like he's not as big as Draymond and and for that reason, probably not quite as effective a screener, maybe not as good a short roll playmaker, but still pretty damn good. And so the Warriors were kind of happily at the start of that game four, bringing GP2 up to screen. And it's the same thing's happening, right? AD is still defending the central pick and roll action, and the Warriors are still getting really good stuff out of that. On the whole, they had a very poor offensive rating in that game four, but that was mainly because they couldn't hit threes. They were getting a ton of good stuff at the rim by pulling AD out. And that was why the Lakers saw fit to make that adjustment. And it's it, it was an interesting one, and it kind of seemed to throw the Warriors for a loop Because in spite of the fact that I think Curry ended up, uh, I saw this in Zach Lowe's column, I think 49 pick and rolls he ran in that game, which was the most in game four. Yeah. Which was the most that he'd run in a game in like five or six years, basically. They, They did go away from it a little bit in the second half. And part of that you could say is like, okay, so if Wiggins now becomes your primary pick and roll screener and you want to have Draymond and GP two on the floor as well, which is, you know, that was their starting lineup. That's how they opened the game. That's how they opened the third quarter. Well, then now you have two non shooters playing off the ball. And that just makes that action easier to defend on the backside. Like even if you want to bring AD up to the level, it's a lot of bodies who can swarm the paint. And so it's not going to be as effective. So that's one thing. And the Warriors countered that by closing with Moody over GP2. But the other thing is like, Andrew Wiggins is not really accustomed to being a pick and roll screener, right? Like he'll do it some of the time, but it's not necessarily what he's used to. And he may not be comfortable doing it in the same way that Peyton was. And so I think, you know, their reaction to that was like, okay, well, we have AD now guarding one of our better shooters. Why don't we just try and space him out? You know, like have Wiggins playing off ball, moving around a little bit. Uh, I actually thought in that game they could have done more. If that was the way they wanted to go, they should have run him off more off ball screens and done more to like take AD away. Because honestly, AD was playing it as if Wiggins was a non-shooter, like was still roving off of him uh, to a pretty alarming degree. And Wiggins wasn't really able to make him pay, like clanked a few wide open threes in that second half. And that allowed the Lakers to get away with it. So I thought the Warriors did a much better job and Wiggins did a much better job in that game five of being that pick and roll screener like he was flipping the angles on those screens like doing some interesting stuff 
And then the, the Warriors were kind of like a, on a couple of possessions doing the sort of screen the screener action where uh, Wiggins was going down to set a pin down for Draymond Green, who's standing in the dunker spot and being guarded by LeBron, where now the Lakers have to decide either LeBron is going to be fighting through that screen and then he's going to be late getting up on the pick and roll or they're going to have to switch it and then, you know, which is what they did. And then they have the matchup they want, which is AD guarding Draymond, which means Draymond can screen and AD is still in the pick and roll action. So they found some tweaks there where they were able to make it work in that game five and kind of make the AD on Wiggins matchup a lot less tenable than it looked in that game four. But to your point about the switching, I kind of think that has been the most effective coverage for the Lakers. Do you agree? I think so too, yeah. And I don't know if, in the interest of preserving AD, like not completely wearing him out, and and him just like having to guard these ball screen actions in one form or fashion, no matter what, is probably going to have some effect on his legs. But to have him trying to track Steph on switches for an entire game, I don't know that that can work. So they have to deploy it selectively. But when they've done it, it's I think it's been the most effective coverage. That's what I was going to say. I think in a vacuum, if you say to me, you've got this one possession and like, here's what's happening. And, and now what? how are you going to combat it? That's what I'd say. Switch it. AD can handle himself on that switch. Like I said, he literally preserved game four in that exact situation. But to do that for a whole game or most of a game over the course of a long series, I just don't think that's tenable. You know, regardless of now the head injury, just he's not built for that. Not, not even anything about him or his own durability. Just it's hard for a big man to do that for a whole series while also shouldering the responsibility AD has on the offensive end. I mean, this is, hasn't exactly been an offensive series, but the Lakers still need what AD gives them on the other end. And especially, I mean, we might get into this. as He's been their best offensive player in this series. Yes. I was going to say, not sure if this is going to be one of your future points on this episode, but especially, based on some of the things we're seeing from LeBron at 38 years old, the Lakers really need AD on the offensive end. So, yeah, it's great in theory that, like, that he can handle himself on switches the way he can. Like probably few, if any, big men in the league can on a switch against a Steph Curry. But like you just can't ask him to do that more often than not over the course of a long series. I just want to add one more thing to the the idea of this game within the game. And that's that it's not just about what's going on with the central action or who's involved in it. It's what's going on on the back end. And I think the Warriors have been really smart about trying to isolate non-rim protectors, essentially, as like the low man helper on the backside. Whether that's been D'Angelo Russell, Austin Reeves, even Vanderbilt, who's got some size and is a, a decent secondary rim protector. He doesn't excel in that area in the way that LeBron does. And they've really made a concerted effort, I think, to make sure that LeBron is like spaced to the strong side corner so that he's not going to be the low man helper. Now, that sort of gets at something, and, and I want to maybe talk about it a little bit later with the Suns Nuggets series, because it's an idea that I've thrown out there before, which is that I, I don't know that teams should be as doctrinaire about the like strong side versus weak side help in the way that they are. Like if LeBron is guarding Gary Payton the second in the strong side corner, 
I think they can still make him like a low man helper and not necessarily worry about giving up the wide open three to a player who doesn't even necessarily want to take that shot. I know exactly where you're going with that on the Nuggets too, because on Nuggets Suns, because I think we're talking (laughs) Nuggets defense and it's also something I had noted. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Okay. I'm glad to hear that. But so that's one thing they've done is like if LeBron's on the back line, they want him in the strong side corner. They want somebody else helping at the rim. But they've also done some stuff where like they're running the first pick and roll action almost in the hopes that the Lakers are going to switch it. Then they have LeBron on Steph. Then they run the pick and roll with AD's man as the screener. Then you have LeBron and AD basically at the level of the ball or the screen. And that's taking away, you know, their two best rim protectors from the basket, right? Like that's, that's just smart stuff. Not just in terms of like, let's put AD in action. Let's tire him out. Let's pull him away from the rim. But like, let's make sure that if we are able to, you know, whether it's get two on the ball or just, you know, find some, even against a switch, right? Like you can still slip against the switch and get a four on three on the backside. If we're able to do that, let's make sure that the guys who are protecting the rim on the backside aren't really able to stop us if we're able to break through. So that's just been a super fascinating battleground. I don't think the series is over by any means in spite of, you know, the the Lakers having gone up 3-1 and that game 6 is just going to be I think it's going to be a barn burner, man. I don't uh I don't know how it's going to go or what's going to happen, but man, I'm excited for that one. Yeah, the uh the California State Championship between uh Warriors Kings and now Warriors Lakers has really been just an absolute cracker of a, a little mini tournament within the the greater postseason tournament. Um, I know you're hosting today, so you're going to segue us in and out of topics. But since we are talking Lakers Warriors, and I think we also both have, well, I know we both have this observation because we were texting about it last night. Should should we just talk LeBron before we move on to storylines from any other series? Well, why don't why don't I segue us to my next All right. kind of big storyline because right. it does involve LeBron. Okay, let's do it. And you can you can say whatever you feel like you need to say about him in this segment, I guess, of the show. But one of the big storylines that, that has jumped out to me is just about mismatch hunting in this postseason. And you know, it's a little bit about how we define mismatch hunting, I guess, because there are a lot of different ways to do it, but I feel like the one that we tend to focus on the most is just big wing attacks small guard. Inverted pick and roll, and either that small guard has to switch and it's a mismatch, or they've got to hedge and recover. You've got two on the ball, you can play out of that. That's like the one that I feel like we tend to see the most often, you know, kind of play the biggest role in the playoffs, at least over the last few years, like really since... 2016 I guess when like LeBron started doing that against Steph over and over and over again and since then I feel like that's been a pretty common theme throughout every postseason and you know you could again a lot of different variations right like you could say well here's the reason I guess that you wouldn't say this like you wouldn't say that the Suns trying to put Jokic in pick and roll action every time is mismatch hunting because that's just a team running you know, one five pick and roll, or like that's that's what a team would normally run anyway. It, they're not cha- they're not changing what they do. Yes, they're not changing what they do to target like one defender. Yeah, it might produce a mismatch, but it's not it's not mismatch hunting because they're not changing anything about what they would do if it was exactly. a mismatch anyway. Yeah, 
And I would say the same thing about, like, if you look at the the Knicks Heat series, there's definitely been a bit of, like, Jimmy Butler puts Jalen Brunson in screening action. Like, he's done that some. But I think actually, like, more so how the Heat have tried to attack Brunson at the defensive end is, like, he's guarding guys like Struess, Robinson, Gabe Vincent, and they're kind of trying to expose Jalen Brunson or at least tire him out by running him through like mazes of off-ball screens. And like, is that a form of mismatch hunting? Not really. That's kind of just what the Heat would do anyway. And yeah. that's, we don't think of it in the same way. So the two that have really jumped out is like, okay, in Boston, Philly, you've got Tatum going at Tyrese Maxey. And in Lakers Warriors, especially down the stretch of that game four and to a maybe slightly lesser extent in game five, you have LeBron, you know, as he always has done, going at Steph Curry. So what have you seen in those two series and specifically in the mismatch hunting element of them that's kind of jumped out to you? And and who do you think that setup has favored, I guess, in those series? Like who's come out ahead in that battleground? Okay, well, Boston-Philly, I think, I think it's easy to say, well, the Celtics come out ahead when they actually get the mismatch the way they want it and they end up with Maxi on Tatum in an advantageous position for Jason Tatum score for the Celtics. But I would actually say the Sixers defense might be coming out ahead because the Celtics seem the Celtics offense seems discombobulated. And I do wonder how much of it is that they're trying to force feed something with Tatum that isn't always there. And like you can even look at the fact, look, I I think Jason Tatum is the better player over Jalen Brown. I'm not here to argue that or say like, you know, and I understand that teams don't just say, well, Hey, our second best player is actually playing better than our first best player. We're now going to divert the offense. Like I get, that's not how it works, but I will also say that having two players as good as Tatum and Brown are, and as close as those guys are, is a very unique position for the Celtics to be in. And I do think some of the Celtics offense probably could be diverted to Jalen Brown a little bit. Like he's, it's about six fewer shooting possessions per game in the second round, Jalen Brown versus Tatum. Brown's obviously been way more efficient. Now I guess the counter would be, well, it's easier to be more efficient when you have less of an offensive burden. But I will say that I think some of the times the Celtics are force feeding Tatum and trying maybe too hard to target and find that mismatch and give it to Tatum actually comes at the expense of their offense. Now, maybe it's also easier to say that just because in general, they're like I said, their offenses look discombobulated. They've had these wretched stretches. They've had, you know, moments like the end of game four where they were down one with 18 seconds left and two timeouts left and they end up draining the clock holding for the last shot as if the game was tied yeah and they don't even end up getting a shot off but but let me say if they had gone earlier that would have worked out perfectly because what did they do they let the clock get too deep but what did they do they ran a tatum pick and roll at maxi they got two on the ball they swung it around and marcus smart got a wide open three that he hit just after the buzzer because they went too late but the the process behind what they actually ran was sound you know, it worked out in yeah. a sense, but they just waited too long. Yeah. No, I agree. And then Lakers-Warriors, <laughs> the reason the Warriors are coming out ahead is because, unfortunately, at 38 years old, with about 6 million NBA miles under his belt, yeah, 
and, and a, a foot injury that yes, seems fair. pretty serious. We should not elide fair. that fact. Which, you know? you know, despite the fact that he did visit the LeBron James of feet, still will require offseason surgery, I believe. But the reason the Warriors are coming out ahead there, or at least breaking even, you know, coming out unaffected, is because, crazy as it may sound, LeBron James can't score on Steph Curry in the post. Like, in game four, the Lakers survived, but LeBron's inability to score on Steph in the post, and not with help either, by the way, like straight up Steph standing him up in the post, LeBron not being able to really muscle his way past Steph, not being able to kind of elevate over him and score over him, missing at the rim, not really seeming sure of himself with the ball in his hands down there, not even able to create the type of advantage that might lead to help coming and an open basket, you know, for a cutter on the base. Like nothing. The Lakers were getting nothing out of that. And I don't want to say it's not like the Lakers have zero points from any time LeBron has, you know, gotten Steph on a mismatch in this series, but they have not done enough in those situations. And I thought that was going to burn them in game four. Like as you're watching it unfold, I was sitting there thinking like, LeBron's inability to score on Steph in the post has really hurt them in this game. This might cost them. They might lose this game because of it. Again, they ended up surviving, you know, to the point where then they only needed to win one of the next three. We'll see if they can do that. But to answer your, you know, that answers your question. And then I'll just say that kind of segues into another point. And we don't have to go too deep on it because I do want to stick with this mismatch hunting uh, topic. But another observation where it's just like, it sounds so obvious, but LeBron just ain't who he used to be, right? And it's understandable, again, between the foot injury, his age, all the miles on his body. But, like, whether it's not being able to score on Steph in the post in single coverage, whether it's even, like, you know, game three, he doesn't take a shot for the first 16 minutes. Now, granted, he was great after that, and the Lakers won that game. So you can say no harm done. But, you know, if you're talking about the Lakers surviving the second round, that's one thing. If you're talking about their ability to actually get to the finals and win a championship, I don't know how much longer they can get away with this, right? With LeBron being the limited version of himself. And it's still great. Like, he's still a great player even at this level. But they need him to get to a level that I'm not sure he's capable of in his current physical condition. So, like, doesn't take a shot for 16 minutes of Game 3. Then I think Chris Haynes reported early in game four that he had asked LeBron about it. And LeBron said, you know, it's just he has to pace himself at this point of his career. Game four, okay, he's not scoring on Steph in single coverage in the post. Game five, similar to game three, where like he didn't, he wasn't very assertive to start the game, but he also was like committing these really weird turnovers. He, had, he got called for a five second count, trying to back down Andrew Wiggins, who's defended him great all series. There was a weird turnover where like, he threw this really lackadaisical pass to D'Angelo Russell in the corner. This was, I think, two possessions after the five-second count. And he just threw it way too long. Like, it was not pinpoint. It was not sharp. D'Angelo Russell literally fell out of bounds trying to catch the ball, and it was a turnover. Like, there's all these things where the sharpness just isn't there, the physical domination over players you would expect him to dominate physically isn't there. And... That's got to be worrying if you're looking at the Lakers as trying to win a championship this year. You know, I wrote about and made a video about a few weeks after the deadline about how the new look Lakers 
who are shockingly actually now built to win and could win based on what they had surrounded LeBron and ED with. But that was also the, under the assumption that even as father time is catching up to him, LeBron could still get to a certain level in the playoffs that unfortunately I just haven't seen. I thought he looked way better actually, you know, as a scorer in game five than he'd looked in games three and four. Well, it and, helped you know, that he knocked down a few threes as well. That helped, but I thought just in terms of like his attacking, putting the ball on the floor and getting all the way to the rim, that stuff looked, he looked to have a little bit more burst than he'd had in like the, you know, the previous four games. And, you know, finishing at the rim has has weirdly been a bit of a struggle for him this series. And you mentioned, I think he was 0 for 5 going one-on-one against Steph in that game four. And you mentioned like the Warriors were giving the switch and then, kind of leaving Steph on an island against LeBron for a lot of that game. And I thought that was interesting. Like they were on a bunch of plays shading help in his direction, but they they were at best soft double teams, if that. And that did open some stuff up. Like what I thought was really interesting in that game four was that they kept going at it. Like even though LeBron individually wasn't having a ton of success attacking it and scoring, they kept going at that matchup. And I do think... Ultimately, they got some good stuff out of it. LeBron grabbed an offensive rebound over Steph after a switch. A couple of times he was able to uh, find, like, basically Lonnie Walker was the guy screening for him. Like, game four hero Lonnie Walker has Steph guarding him. So he's the one screening for LeBron. And a couple of the threes he got, one of them was just off of a pick and roll where he flared, or a pick and pop where he flared out for three. And... The, the Warriors did switch it, but I think, I guess it must have been Wiggins who was guarding LeBron was like late getting out to Lonnie Walker on the switch. He hit a three off of that. Another one was LeBron taking Steph into the post. Wiggins is shading in his direction, helping down from the top, kick out to Lonnie Walker. He got another three that way. So they did get good stuff out of it. There was another one actually where uh, LeBron got the switch. And this is how I think it's been more effective is like rather than taking Steph into the post where Steph is a deceptively strong dude, right? Even though LeBron can shoot over him, Steph is strong. He's 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 going to fight for that space. But just like attacking him from the top and he drew a foul and free throws that way. So I thought the Lakers still got good stuff out of it. And I did think this sort of, you know, dovetails with the point about AD and maybe doing your best to wear him out. Steph kind of ran out of gas at the offensive end down the stretch of game four. And I don't know that that's a coincidence, right? Like, Probably the fact that he was having to defend LeBron James on multiple possessions in that fourth quarter took a little something out of him as well. So then what I thought was interesting in game five is the Warriors kind of stopped giving the switch. They went back to doing the hedge and recover thing that they've pretty much always done when Steph gets put in action. And I thought that led to, interestingly enough, you know, a more successful LeBron scoring game and not a more successful LeBron playmaking game, which is the opposite of what I would have expected. Like mm-hmm. he finished with three assists and four turnovers. And you mentioned like the, you know, whether it was lackadaisical passes or just being a little bit loose with the handle. That was the thing that stuck out to me in that game. Whereas like previously it had been just like the shooting wasn't there. The touch around the basket wasn't where it was usually at this game. It was like, he was just a little bit sloppy with the ball in a way that I haven't seen him. And considering that they were, you know, I don't think they did it quite as often as they did in the fourth quarter because they pretty much did it every trip down, at least in like the last six minutes of that game four. Didn't do it quite as often in game five, but considering how much they were still going to that 
you know, inverted pick and roll with LeBron going at Steph. And considering the fact that the the Warriors were like hedging it, I'm surprised. I know like there were a couple of hockey assists in there that he, he's not going to get it credited for, but I thought it was surprising that he couldn't make more of an impact as a playmaker in that game. Yeah, that's a great point. I'd also mention too, because, um, you know, we talked about his foot. Late in that game, I don't know if he rolled his ankle or maybe tweaked the foot. He did something and he was limping a bit. And then there was a point where the Lakers were making a run late fourth quarter and uh, Andrew Wiggins got an offensive rebound that was like essentially the dagger, if an offensive rebound can ever be a dagger. But he got that offensive rebound because LeBron was waiting for a defensive rebound. Like he couldn't get off the floor or he couldn't get off the floor in time. Like he was late leaving the ground. And winced a bit. And again, just something to keep an eye on the longer this series goes. Because I think another good point, too, is like you brought up, you know, Steph probably showing fatigue because he was guarding LeBron. And we talk about them trying to tire AD out and LeBron out. Like so many times in this series, because it is a matchup of these like old teams or at least old stars, everywhere you look, whether it's on the broadcast itself, obviously, you know, when you got like the Chuck and Shaq, those guys clowning around, like, Everyone's talking about the minutes, like minute watch. They put it, they put the graphic up mid-game in this series for like the LeBron, AD, Steph, Draymond, Clay minute watch because they're all these old guys. But it's like, it's not just the minutes. Isn't it's AD not, like 30? Yeah, but come on. He's an old 30, I know, He's but still. He's going on 64. <laughs> this guy qualifies for his pension soon. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's just funny to me because it's like, oh, there's minute watch, but it's like, it's not the minutes per se. Like, yes, obviously the minutes matter, but it's like what they're doing in those minutes. It's to your point, Steph having to guard LeBron at times. It's how the Warriors are making AD move. Like that is more important. And that like that's tied to the fatigue more than just how many minutes did they play. To take it back to Sixers Celtics, <laughs> I thought the Celtics weirdly kind of went away from the Tatum Maxi pick and roll stuff in that game five. And I do, and I don't understand why, like what they did was they went like when Tatum was running pick and roll, more of it was at Embiid. And I understand in a sense, like they're almost trying to do something similar to what the Warriors are trying to do with like pulling, you know, AD away from the rim, putting him in action. Um, didn't really work. Embiid was an absolute monster defensively. Monster defensively in that game five. But yeah, I thought in in game four, you know, in spite of the fact, almost similar to LeBron, like Tatum individually didn't have a ton of success in that one-on-one matchup when the Sixers gave the switch. The Celtics as a whole were still getting pretty good stuff out of it. And I don't really think they lost that game four because their offense wasn't good enough. It's weirdly been their defense that has let them down, I think, for the most part in this series. And again, I think it's interesting. Like the Sixers are almost stubbornly, they're mixing it up. They're not switching it every time, but they're not doing the hedge and recover thing and putting two on the ball as often as you might have expected. And as often as the Celtics probably want them to, like as much as the Celtics probably feel really good about a Tatum Maxi one-on-one matchup. I almost think in terms of their offensive process and flow, they would rather be getting two on the ball and getting the ball zipping around. Like, I think that's what they want. And when the Sixers are giving the switch, Maxi is battling, man. Like I I've been critical of his defense in the past. I think it was much improved this season. And I think in this series, when it's been 
that one-on-one matchup. I think he's kind of given Tatum all he can handle. And I think, you know, even when he's playing the hedge and recover game, he's doing it effectively enough that the Celtics aren't like completely scrambling the Sixers defense. So I kind of think that the, the Sixers have come out ahead in that battleground because the fact that Maxi has been viable defensively in this series, we saw like he struggled offensively against the Celtics length in the first four games, but finally breaks out in game five. He is so important to their offense in terms of like being that guy who can attack the gaps off of the catch when Harden or Embiid or Harden and Embiid in conjunction with each other are bringing multiple defenders to the ball. It was weirdly like they put the ball in Maxi's hands in the second half of that game five, and he kind of carried them home as an on-ball creator. And it's really like the versatility in his offensive game and his scoring ability specifically uh, is really shining through. And I think the fact that he can stay on the floor defensively, the Celtics aren't hurting him too badly uh, is really a huge deal because of what he can give the Sixers offensively. Yeah. And I don't know that he would have been able to do what he's doing as an on-ball creator when his individual scoring uh, hasn't been quite what it was like last year. Like I do think there's been growth in hundred percent in that component of Maxi's game. And I think his ability to do that for their offense is huge. I think we should take the break soon, but before we do, do you are any of your other storylines related to the Celtic Sixers series? They are, but I want, you know what? I think I can just mention it quickly before we go to break. Cause it's not so much of like a big picture, like tactical thing as much as it is just very like Philly specific, but my observation and I wrote about it, if we're talking like second round observations is that everything's coming up Philly. And what I mean by that is like, if you're looking for in the Embiid era, a moment where it was like, okay, this is their time. This is their chance to me. This is it. And that's not even to say like this, this is the best team they've had in the NBA. Cause I still think when they had Jimmy Butler and came a shot away from overtime against the eventual champions, like that was probably their best team in the NBA era. But if you're talking about, the best chance to win a championship in the Embiid era, this is it. They are up 3-2, going home. They're coming home with an opportunity to close out the Celtics, with an opportunity to end what's the fourth longest conference finals drought in the NBA, by the way. If they can do that, they would have home court advantage through the rest of the playoffs because the number one overall seeded Bucks are gone. The number two seed overall are the Celtics, who the Sixers are on the precipice of eliminating Everything came together for Embiid this year. He finally won MVP. Not that, you know, that's going to determine what happens in the playoffs, but I'm just saying, like, this is what I wrote about. Like, there's reasons to think, okay, like, it is all coming together for Philly this year. This might be the year, even Harden, even though when he's had his big games, it hasn't been vintage Harden, as we discussed last episode. It's not like he's found, you know, separation from defenders in ways he used to be, but he's found ways to his credit, whether it's just the shot falling, whatever, to come up with two massive performances when the Sixers needed it most in ways that maybe you couldn't always say about the Sixers level era Harden. Maxi's development as an on-ball creator, like we were just saying, I think I mentioned before the playoffs started, the six when I do that annual like anatomy of a, a championship team piece, the Sixers and the Celtics were the only teams that actually checked every single box of, you know, modern champions. So like, you look at the way the playoff bracket is shaped out. 
this is their moment, man. And that doesn't mean they're going to get it done. It's me saying, like, I'm really curious no, all, to see. All, all of this tells me is that they're 100% going to lose game six at home. Hey, listen, they might. This moment will still be there for them and the chance to slay a lot of demons. I think they're winning game seven in Boston. Yeah. But it's – I'm just saying it's all there for them, you know, in ways that I don't think it has been at any other point in the Embiid era. And I know I've said it a thousand times about, like, a lot of times teams don't realize that their best chance has already passed them by until it's too late. But sometimes it's very obvious and you can feel it. And for me, like, this is that moment for the Sixers. Very obviously, this is their best chance. What will they do with it? Shout out to Bias Harris, too. Just filling gaps, hitting shots or attacking off of the catch. It took him four years, but he has finally figured out how to be the perfect fourth option for this team. And defending pretty well, too. He's getting the Tatum assignment a lot of the time. He's holding his own, man. Great series for him so far. Yeah, and to his credit, he was like, you know, they were up 3-0 already, but... Tobias Harris, I think, was the biggest reason why the Sixers won game four in Brooklyn without Joel Embiid and just ended that series rather than have it prolong and them have to play more. And another thing I mentioned in that uh, feature I wrote about how like this just seems like everything's coming up Philly is this is also the first year that the Sixers have really survived the annual Joel Embiid postseason injury. And that started with Tobias Harris and the Sixers winning game four in Brooklyn without him. Then it was James Harden coming up huge in game one against the Celtics without him. Like now Embiid is starting to find his rhythm. Like the, just another layer of that whole, like this is their moment thing is that they survived the annual Joel Embiid postseason injury, at least so far in ways they haven't in the past. And Tobias Harris gets credit for that. Yeah. Uh, and just one last point on that series is, so I think the Celtics had done a very good job defending the Harden Embiid pick and roll up until game five when... Actually, the Sixers did some creative things to, to kind of open up space for it. But also the Celtics were just way less locked in with their help. They'd done a really good job of bringing that help over to the nail to make sure that Embiid wasn't getting comfortable on that short roll. And the Sixers, with, with just like a couple small tweaks, honestly, managed to confuse that help. Um, a lot of times it was like Maxi who would be on the wing. And you want him there because if the nail helps coming, then like that kick can go to Maxi and he can either attack the closeout or he can pop the three. But interestingly enough, like they moved him out of there. Like he would start on the wing. He would cut through to like the dunker spot. You know, it would be like basically a weak side exchange where whoever was in the corner would kind of lift up. But I thought that Derek White, who's had the maxi assignment for most of this series, he was like a particularly bad offender in terms of just like messing up the help in those situations. And I understand you're like having to make these adjustments and calculations in real time. but uh, you know, there was so so it was like one instance where Maxi cuts through and it's Tucker in the corner. And when Maxi cuts through, White passes him off to Jalen Brown, who then has him covered off in the dunker spot. So now White is functionally guarding Tucker in the corner, and yet he stays planted there while Embiid rolls to the free throw line and hits a wide open jumper. No help comes. A few minutes later, it's Harris in the corner, and he lifts up to the wing when Matt's when Maxi cuts through. And that time, White does bring the help, and it's a kick to Tobias Harris on the wing for a wide open three. And I just feel like his, like Derek White's kind of help or don't help decisions from the weak side were basically wrong. Like his instincts were wrong all night. And that is a strange thing to see 
from somebody who I think has been, I mean, I put him on my all defensive first team and I think he wound up making second team this year, second right? Team, like yeah. he's been one of the best defenders in basketball this whole season. Uh, it was uncharacteristic from him to say the least. So that's one thing I'm definitely going to be watching in game six. I think the Celtics are going to be a lot more locked in with their help because if they're not, they're going home. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I I was being facetious earlier when I said the Sixers are 100% going to lose that game six at home. But I also think that just expecting them to roll, you know, now that they've kind of, you know, they've taken the lead, they're coming home with a chance to close it out. Given what we know about this team and what we've seen over the last few years, I think that would be a mistake. Like this is going to be, this is a tough test for them to to be able to close this out. 100%. The Celtics are an awesome team. I will also say though, you know, what better way for them to slay all their demons than winning a game seven on the road in Boston with Joel Embiid and James Harden showing up when facing elimination. <laughs> also, uh, not that it necessarily has to do with this Sixers team, but well, the, the, the Embiid era Sixers coming into this series had lost two series to Boston and were one and eight in those two series. The Sixers franchise as a whole has lost five straight playoff series to the Celtics dating back to 1985. Like even just for the psyche of Sixers fans, not that that'll matter in terms of what's happening on the court and what happens beyond that on the court. But like, even just as a fan, I can only imagine what winning this series will do for their psyche. Oh man. Well, that game is going tonight and uh, I can't wait to see what happens. So Let's take the break there and we'll come back and we'll just get to a couple more of our uh, second round storylines. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash. Let's call it the the first half of the episode is done, but it's more like the NBA season where the All-Star break actually comes in like two-thirds of the way through. Uh, We're closer to the end than to the beginning here, but let's round this episode out with a couple more of our favorite storylines from the second round. I'll kick it to you, man. What do you got? Well, you kind of touched on it already and teased it, I should say. And then I mentioned that, you know, I knew you were talking about the Nuggets defense because it's something I had known it as well. So a lot of the talk in Nuggets, Suns, and I completely understand it, understandably so. Devin Booker, absolute man on fire. Didn't have quite the same uh, effect on game five as he had through games one and four, but just an unbelievable performance from him multi-game performance one of the craziest shot making runs that i've ever seen yes and doing that while on a team with kevin durant like not only do you have to contend with devin booker turning into prime michael jordan but you imagine if like mj had kevin durant beside him now what i'll also say is that the nuggets shot themselves in the foot some especially in those two losses in phoenix where if it's possible to overreact to a shooting performance like that, I think they did. And the reason I say that is because, look, I understand that it's easy to say this in hindsight. It's easy to play, I think I've said it before, a Monday morning point guard instead of Monday morning quarterback. But 
it's easy to say, well, what are they going to do? Just let Devin Booker beat them single-handedly. But I was at the point where I was like, honestly, just like let him try to do that. Because we've talked so much about the Suns' shot profile, right? And yeah, it's been a lot more, not three-point heavy, but three-point heavier in this series than it has been at other times. And a lot more sensible, I'd say. But still, for the most part, Devin Booker is killing you from areas inside the arc. And that's not to say he can't kill you from there. But I was struggling to find the logic in the Nuggets continuously over and over again, helping off, not just like offensive liabilities, helping off Landry Shamit, okay, who's actually a good shooter, who's had a good series, who's, who's been a godsend for them in this series, really, since CP went out. Like, helping off Landry Shamit in the corner an easy pass away from Devin Booker to send, you know, extra bodies at Booker, sometimes KD inside the arc. Like, I understand the logic of like, well, obviously you're going to double those guys, you know, rather than worry about role players. But I also think it, it depends on like, well, who is the role player? Where are they stationed on the court? And if it's like Landry Shamit or a, a shooter like that in the corner, a pass away, maybe don't send the help from there because you can be pretty confident he's going to make that just like, okay, you can be confident Booker's going to hit it in single coverage inside the arc, but one's a two and one's a three. And so that was a storyline for me more so in games three and four in, in this series than it was in games five because they didn't get burned on it as much. But like, I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that because I do understand why there would some people would push back against that and say, look, you're crazy. They can't let Devin Booker just beat them in single coverage all game. So I, I am curious to know where you stand on that. Uh, I don't have an issue. I mean, look, their, their base coverage in pick and roll for the last several years has been to have Jokic at the level. And they're certainly not going to change that when they're going up against a pick and roll operator and a pull-up jump shooter of Devin Booker's caliber, especially given the heater that he's on right now. Yeah. I have no issue with that. Like, they would play that style of pick and roll coverage against a much less threatening pick and roll ball handler. I do actually think, you know, like to their credit, like one of the things I've seen this season from Denver's defense is more adaptability. And when Chris Paul was healthy early in the series, they're playing drop against Chris Paul and pick and roll, right? Like to me, it's not about how they're playing those pick and rolls on the front end. It's more about what they're doing on the back end. And this is, this goes for both him and KD because they're bringing Jokic up to the level uh, against those two guys. I think generally this series, they've done a good job on the back end in terms of rotating, but there is like, so that game four, when, when Shamit went off and look, I would caution against, or I would have, if we'd had this conversation after game four, I don't think I need to now because we all saw what happened in game five, Mm -hmm. but to think that like the Suns had just found the answer with Shamit, you know, being going basically full bore on offense and shooting and that being how they round up their lineups. Because if we're talking storylines in this playoffs, the Suns like constant search for, you know, initially it was a fifth guy. Then Chris Paul went out. So it was a fourth and a fifth guy. Then DeAndre Ayton vanished into thin air. And so now it's like a search for a third, fourth and fifth guy around Booker and KD. I don't think it was a bad instinct to go with Shaman. Obviously, he rewarded them in game four, but he has to shoot like that to make it viable. And he also, I mean, like he kind of held his own defensively against Jamal Murray in that game four, but I don't think that's something that's going to sustain itself long term. And we already saw 
in game five that that, that matchup yeah, kind of tilted back in in Murray's favor. Because I agree with what you're saying, but just from a shooting perspective, like he is a good shooter. If you yes. give like if he's getting open looks from the corner, like I said, you can be pretty confident he's gonna knock a lot of those down. So here's what I would say about that. And I teased it earlier when talking about this idea of like defensive rules and where you can and can't help from and who is the low man rotator in any situation. Like, I don't think it can be that fixed. So there were a couple times in that game four where you had Murray guarding Shamit on the single side, right? Which means like he is basically the only shooter on that side of the floor when the Suns are running a spread pick and roll. So whether it's Booker or KD running the pick and roll, they're starting out basically on that wing, but they're moving toward the side of the floor with two shooters on it. And what the Nuggets will do in that situation, they're putting two on the ball and Aiton, who's usually setting the screen, is rolling and the guy coming over to tag the roll, because this is what the rules dictate, is Jamal Murray because the ball is moving away from that side it is a tougher pass to make because whoever's running that now has to go back across their body. So Murray is the guy coming over to tag. For KD and Booker, that's not really a very difficult pass to make. And so while I understand why the rules dictate that Murray is you know, the low man helper in that situation, what that ends up doing is leaving Landry Shamit open in the corner with a not that difficult pass for Booker or KD to make to hit him there. And there's nobody else to help because he's the only guy on that side of the floor. Whereas the alternative is you've got like MPJ in what is now the strong side corner guarding TJ Warren and Bruce Brown on the strong side wing guarding campaign. Either one of those guys could rotate over and tag the role in that situation. Then, yeah, those shooters are one pass away. That's a much easier pass for Booker or KD to make. But you still have another guy on that side of the floor who's kind of able to split the difference between the two. So if Bruce Brown is bringing the tag from the top, MPJ can do his best to like guard between campaign or TJ Warren and rotate to whoever gets the ball. And worst case scenario, one of those two guys gets an open three. That's still much preferable to Landry Shamit getting that open three in the corner, right? Mm -hmm. So that's where I think you just have to be a little bit more willing to adapt those coverages in terms of just like paying attention to the floor balance and like base where you're helping from off of that. And the, the shooter quality obviously should factor into that too. So that was one thing. And then another thing was, and I think this only happened on one possession, so I don't think we should make a huge deal of it, but you know, there's that one play where Booker is running a left wing pick and roll. He's moving toward the middle. Kevin Durant is on the right wing, or maybe it was the other way around. Uh, KD was on the left wing, but one way or another, Aaron Gordon, who's guarding KD, comes over to bring nail help on Devin Booker. Yeah. And like, if you are going to bring gap help off of Kevin Durant, you'd better make damn sure that there is a third defender ready to run yeah. out at him. Because KD can't be getting wide open wing threes off a nail help. He just can't. So in that situation, I think after the play, like Aaron Gordon was looking around and looking at MPJ, who was in the, the corner, being like, like, where were you? Like he was supposed to rotate up. So I think that can work as long as you have 
that, you know, help the helper situation, if you're on point with that, then it can still work. But I think they just weren't quite locked in in game four and they got burned for it. At the same time, the sun shot making has just been so crazy. They're still so dependent on those two guys. Any slippage from one of or both of KD and Booker kind of sinks the Suns. And I just think the margin for error is too thin for Phoenix. As much as we've seen, like, yeah, those two guys on their own, plus like, you know, just one or two decent role player performances. Shamit popping off, like Aiton having himself a half decent game. Terrence Ross, Torrey Craig, like one of those guys just showing up to help them. The Suns can still pull out a win. They can still win game six and stretch this to seven. But there's and just so much point, more margin for error for Denver. To that point, when it's Shamit popping off from deep, when it's Aiton having, you know, one of his every four or five good games and he's doing work inside, the reason in addition to just giving them a third player that it's so important for the Suns is because it helps balance and fix their shot profile. Like when DeAndre Ayton is actually doing what he's supposed to do against mismatches inside and scoring inside, they're getting more at the rim than they usually would. When Landry Shamit is popping off and nailing every open corner three or Terrence Ross randomly hits three or four, that's giving them the three point, you know, some of the math advantage that they don't usually have because of their shot selection. So like, those guys popping off isn't just important for them having a third guy more than, you know, not having to play two on five. It's also very valuable for their shot profile, which we have detailed before as one of their, you know, biggest, if not the biggest bugaboo this team has. But to the point about how Denver is defending Phoenix, because that's kind of, if I'm boiling it down to, this is the big storyline is how is Denver defending Phoenix? I mentioned on the last episode about how we just hadn't seen a ton of the Suns multi-screener actions, right? It was just a lot of basic spread pick and roll without a ton of like movement or things going on around that. I mentioned how they hadn't used Booker and Durant in pick and roll action together. Again, you have Aaron Gordon defending KD and like usually KCP or Bruce Brown defending Booker. So if they run a pick and roll with those guys, it's it's basically an easy switch for Denver without giving up too much. But the the Suns' answer to that, and we still haven't seen really much Spain pick and roll for them, but they've gone heavy, heavy on the double drag pick and roll action. And that's allowed them to use KD as one of those screeners and use him and Booker in action together. That was super effective in the games in Phoenix. And the Nuggets kind of, tweak their coverage a bit. I want to give a huge shout out to Nikias Duncan, who I, I hope everybody who listens to our show is familiar with his work, but he put out an incredible breakdown on Twitter, just showing how the Nuggets had kind of defended that action. And what they started to do, especially in that game five, was whether it was a switch on the first screen or just like an all out blitz, they're not letting them use the second screen. And what that's doing is that's keeping Jokic out of that action. And I thought that was pretty successful, even though it's usually putting two on the ball. I thought it was pretty effective in terms of like not letting the Suns get exactly what they wanted. And then like on the back side of that, MPJ continues to be the guy that they're sticking on like the least threatening player on the floor. Whether that's a Kogi, whether it is, I guess, Warren, even though Warren I thought had a pretty good game. But he is what I would describe as their designated strong side overload helper, 
which means that if he's in the weak side corner, he's coming all the way over to the other side of the paint to make sure that Booker or KD can't get a clean touch on that side of the floor. And as a guy who is 6'10", he's really effective in terms of like bringing double teams and making those guys uncomfortable. I thought he had a magnificent defensive game in game five. Like all the credit in the world to MPJ who had kind of had a tough series. And on top of the shot making that he brought Denver, especially early in that game five to get them going, I thought his defense was excellent and his timing on those rotations. Because it's not easy, right? To come all the way over to the other side. You can get burned for that if your timing isn't on point. He did a great job. And like as soon as the ball was coming down, whether it was like KD trying to post up, he's there, man. Like he is getting there in perfect time to bring the double team. And given his size, like he's actually able to to give those double teams some bite. Um, We haven't talked yet about Nick's Heat. Do you have any have any big storylines from that series to close us out here, Cash? I mean, the the first one that pops out to me, the only note I had for this series was somebody please grab a defensive rebound. (laughs) And and uh, and Jalen Brunson's a dog. Now, I think the Heat are going to win going away in game six at home to end this magical Knicks season, but just a shout out to Jalen Brunson. I think I actually shouted about it in the last episode or two episodes ago, talking about how, you know, two years in a row now, he has proven himself and then some as a postseason performer. Last year, you know, as a role, more of a role player or like secondary player. Although, you know, when, when Doncic was hurt, he was more of a primary, but you know what I mean? He was not the guy on that team. And then this year as the guy and like the guy who's, shouldering everything on the offensive end he's shown up in both cases no matter what the challenge is no matter what the role is and as I mentioned a couple weeks ago what's most impressive about it is that everything about his player profile says he should struggle more in the playoffs because he's an undersized offensively slanted guard who struggles defensively and yet seemingly every year in the playoffs there's Jalen Brunson raising his game you know not seeing a dip in his production. So full credit to him. I think the next season's about to end, but he deserves all the credit in the world for the fact it's gotten this far. And then, yeah, just a note about someone grab a defensive rebound. Both teams up over 30% in offensive rebound rate this series. The other way you can look at that is that both teams under 70% in terms of defensive rebound rate. The Knicks were a great defensive rebound, sorry, offensive rebounding team all season, but they also cleaned the defensive glass well too. Like it's not like they were an easy target for exploitation on the like on the glass and that's where I think the surprise has been that the Heat have been able to get what they've gotten off the offensive glass also the Knicks have a higher offensive rebound rate in this series but the Heat are scoring two extra second chance points per game which in the postseason when the margins are as slim as they are that's big it's called Heat Devil Magic Cash Cash the Wave um so Quickly, to just build on your point about Brunson, I mentioned on our last episode just about how the Heat were defending him and kind of showing him a little bit less help at the point of attack, but more at the second level of defense. And I think that threw him off a little bit at the start of the series, and he has really figured it out as the series has gone on. He's just gotten better and better, and in terms of like his ability to solve that coverage, like I think we saw the full scope of it in game five. Like he had that game completely on a string. He must've hit like eight, nine, 10 floaters in that game. Like he was just in the zone 
and his ability to kind of deal with all of those stunts and like the waves of secondary defenders to kind of like diagnose and know where they're coming from, know how and when to protect the ball, when to shoot, when to pass. Unbelievable, man. Could not be more impressed with what Jalen Brunson has done this season, this postseason, this series in particular. Kudos to him. But I think, you know, so like the big storyline from this series to me is A, the Heat have kind of beaten the Knicks at their own game in some senses. But more than that, it's just I think what stood out to me and what's impressed me the most about this freaking unkillable Miami Heat team, just problem solvers of the highest order, finding completely different ways to win, man. Like they are winning this series in a completely different way than they won the series against Milwaukee. And obviously that has been necessary because for one thing, their three-point shooting, which was probably like the biggest reason that they were able to beat the Bucs in five games. They shot 45% from deep as a team has perhaps predictably fallen off a cliff. They're down to 31% from deep in this series against the Knicks which is far lower even than their 27th ranked three-point percentage during the regular season. And yet, they've managed to overcome that and sustain a pretty good offensive rating in this series because they have the highest rim frequency of any team in the second round. And if that doesn't sound crazy to you, let me just tell you, they finished 28th in rim frequency during the regular season and they were second last in rim frequency in the first round. Now, they were playing the Bucks, so that's not a surprise. That has a lot to do with how the Bucks defend. But still, for them to be number one in rim frequency in the second round is wild. And that's a big reason they've been able to overcome the, the shooting fall off. Another big reason, as you mentioned, is like they're getting on the offensive glass and kind of beating the Knicks at their own game in that way. They're turning the Knicks over way more than the Knicks are turning them over. And so those things that the Knicks used to, to kind of jerry-rig this really successful season in terms of like overcoming their own shot-making limitations by winning the possession battle, that's what the Heat are doing to the Knicks in this series. But like the, the biggest element to that, I mean, it is like the possession stuff, like turnovers, offensive rebounds, kind of winning those battlegrounds. But I guess on the whole, it's kind of like they're, they're gumming up the Knicks offense. and. You know, just one very crude illustration of that. They tied for third during the regular season with a 117 offensive rating. In this series, it's 108.6. And I, I just think the Heat have been like very, very locked in with their defense, where they're helping from, who they're helping off of. Even with Jalen Brunson going off, he's having to fight for everything he gets. Like these are tough shots that he is making. Finding ways to win. It's part of Heat culture, baby. And you mentioned the fact that the Heat just have a bunch of problem solvers. Well, that's on the court. But the chief problem solver is the guy running the X's and O's for them. Because Eric Spolstra is just chef's kiss. Yeah. He, uh, he's probably the best coach in the NBA. I think right? So. Yeah. The tactical stuff, always nailed obviously commands a ton of respect among the players in the room. And I think he's got the perfect balance between intensity where he'll be ready to fight Jimmy Butler, you know, one night and then he'll have his arm around someone the next game. And like, I just think he kind of has it all. And uh, 
you especially see it in the postseason. Uh, okay, any other big sweeping takeaway storylines from the second round so far? I have none left. All right, just for fun, Cash, we haven't done this really at any point. We haven't done the prediction game this postseason. But it's your birthday, and I want to give you a gift. Why don't we predict who is making the conference finals? What do you got, Cash? All right. Nuggets in six. I think the Nuggets ended tonight. Lakers uh, in seven. I know that sounds crazy because then, yeah, okay. I don't know. I, I mean, look, lose I'm, at I'm home and win game seven I'm on the road. The Lakers to win it, but I also yeah. feel like the Warriors have one last hurrah in them. And I okay. realize it sounds crazy because that would require the Warriors winning on the road and then the Lakers winning in the Bay, but whatever. Let's go with it. And then I think the Heat win going away in game six back at home. Man, Philly, Boston, I I really want to take the Sixers at home. Just being like, this is it. They're going to do it. Or like I said, maybe in game seven with like slaying all the demons and beat it hard and finally show up for an elimination game. They finally beat the Celtics. They do it on the road in game seven. But uh, I have a feeling it's going to be Celtics in seven, man. Uh, I have that same feeling. I'm going Celtics in seven. I'm going Warriors in seven. Okay. I'm going Heat in six and Nuggets in seven. I think cool. the Suns, they just shoot the ball way better at home, as most teams do. And I feel like they will get one more of those electric offensive performances before running out of gas in Denver, in the altitude in game seven. So Nuggets in seven, Celtics in seven, Warriors in seven. Wow. Three game sevens. Am I really predicting that? Shit. Uh, Heat in six. So that would leave us with yet another Celtics Heat Eastern Conference Finals. It would be the third in four years. And Nuggets Warriors in the West Finals, which, whew, that'd be fun. It's going to be fun one way or another, but uh, that's how I see it shaking out. Do you, uh, you want to get us a fan shout out before we get out of here? Or do you just want to get out of here and go enjoy the rest of your birthday? I'll, I'll do a quick fan shout out. Don't think we've ever shouted him out before. He interacts with us on Twitter a lot and definitely listens to the show because often interacts about stuff that we have said on the show. So this week's fan shout out goes out to Boberto at the Bobert on Twitter based in Toronto who tweeted at me after the last episode or two episodes ago simply to say that the, uh, the Fredo Corleone of food takes, which is what I said about PJ Tucker's <laughs> food take on it or take on italian food was chef's kiss and then he included a gif of lenny from the simpsons doing the chef's kiss so that's it fan shout out to boberto who uh, i know is a portuguese guy from toronto because we often interact about soccer and this and uh, the like and he actually recently tweeted at me because i tweeted uh in support of a portuguese player who plays for my favorite club ac milan and Boberto actually replied to me saying that uh, growing up as a Portuguese person in Toronto, he wasn't aware of the fact Italians could ever give credit to Portuguese. So I know, <laughs> I know he's Portuguese and in Toronto. So shout out Boberto. All right. Shout out Boberto. Shout out to all our listeners for riding with us through this postseason, through yet another extended episode of the show. But we got to cap it there and let Cash get out of here. Cash, I, I want to give a huge shout out to you for spending your birthday or at least part of it with me talking about ball. I know it's my pleasure and I'm glad to know that it's your pleasure too, to the point that you would spend such a special occasion doing what we so often do. We will. 
I was just going to say, I hope, uh, I don't know. I feel like I was a bit sloppy today with my words. So I was going to say, I hope that my age isn't showing like LeBron's. <laughs> Jesus, man. On that note, <laughs> we're going to get out of here. We'll be back early next week. We'll leave you with that for this week. So enjoy your weekend, everybody. And uh, an early happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. I don't know how many moms we have listening to this show, but there you have it. Happy Mother's Day. Shout out moms. And uh, I guess also I will add, really in hindsight, I should like I should be happy to age like LeBron, if we're being honest. But uh, for the yeah, sake of We should all be so lucky. Are you kidding me? Yeah, obviously. But for the sake of today's episode and the theme of today's episode, I hope I didn't show my age in today's episode. The way LeBron has showed his age in specific components of this Lakers Warrior series. I felt I just had to clarify that. Because even trying to throw a jab at LeBron in in parting from this episode just doesn't feel right because of he's just overcome the effects of age in ways no other athlete we've ever seen do it so it's too late man that's out there in the ether you will never be invited to go on the shop i'm sorry to say but with that (laughs) we're gonna put a bow on this we'll talk to you all next week for joseph cacharo on his b-day i'm joe wolfond pound the rock (laughs) 